Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which of the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth, a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, that's as far as we're going to try to cover. We won't cover all of this. Actually, we're only going to get as far as the first three beasts tonight. We won't get into the fourth beast. There's so much involved with that. We'll deal with that in two weeks. Remember, there's no Bible study next week, so we'll deal with that in two weeks. Now, go back to verse one, though. There's something that's happened here that most people miss. Notice when verse 1 tells us that this dream that Daniel, this vision that Daniel had happened. It happened during Belshazzar's first year of being king of Babylon. Who's Belshazzar? Does anybody remember Belshazzar? He was the king of Babylon that was killed during the party. Remember the handwriting on the wall and, and the Medes and the Persians came in and killed him that night? Well, we've already had him die in our, in our study of Daniel. But Daniel says in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign, which tells us we're jumping back in time now. If you think, well, the chapter 7 happens after chapter 6, you'll be wrong. Actually, chapter 7 and 8 happen in chronology between chapters 4 and chapters 5. If you were to put it in when it happened, chapters 7 and 8, these visions that Daniel has about the coming kingdoms, they happen between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, th if this is... Belshazzar's first year of being king, what year of being king is it? This goes way back. Who said it? Second. Good for you, John. It's his second. Remember in the Babylonian way of counting kings, their first year wasn't counted. It's the second year becomes the first year. And so it's the second year, actually, of Belshazzar's reign, which puts it about 553 B.C. All right. Now, 
Not only does this put chapter 7 and 8 between chapters 4 and 5 in Daniel, when Daniel has this vision, it's been now 50 years since Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. Remember Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and he told everybody, I don't want you to interpret it. you got to tell me what the dream was, and then the interpretation. Well, it has been 50 years now at this point since Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of the statue with the head of gold, chest of silver, and so on. We did that study. At this point, when, Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, when uh, Daniel has his vision in 553 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's dream was 50 years ago, and Nebuchadnezzar has been dead now for nine years. So Nebuchadnezzar had his dream 50 years prior to this. He's now even been dead for nine years, and this is 14 years prior to the night that Belshazzar is going to be killed. So that gives you a rough idea of when this happens, okay? So... Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel have shown us how God is sovereign over the affairs of men and how he will take care of those who trust him, even though wicked men plot their demise. That's what we've looked at so far. Chapters 7 through 12, the rest of the book, are going to show that this sovereign God also controls the timing of the kingdoms of men and how after the kingdoms of men are brought to a close, God himself will set up his own kingdom on the earth. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we begin to look at the rest of Daniel. All right, we've already seen how wicked men are plotting evil against, uh, against God's people and how God takes care of them. Now we're going to look at how God controls the timing of all the kingdoms of men and how ultimately at the end when he's determined man's kingdom on the earth has come to the end, Jesus himself will come and set up his kingdom. And folks, listen to me very closely because unfortunately not every Christian has been taught this. Jesus is actually going to set up his kingdom literally on this earth. You have to believe that unless you don't believe the fact that what we're going to look at tonight literally happened. When he talks about the kingdoms of the gold and the silver and the, the bronze and then the legs of iron and then feet of steel and uh, iron and clay as we've already looked at. And tonight we're going to see these four beasts are representative and very similar to what we've seen before. And we're going to talk about how those were all literally fulfilled. If those were all literally fulfilled... If the Bible then says that Jesus is going to be given a kingdom and it's going to be on the earth, it's going to happen. All right. So that'll be hopefully helpful for us. Go for it. The difference between a dream and a vision, uh, to be honest with you, it, he uses both words interchangeably here. And, and honestly, the short answer to that question, because to deal with it in great detail would take me through a lot of scriptures and we don't have time to chase all that. The short version is this. All of us dream. All of us have dreams. I mean, and a lot of times we joke about have eaten, shouldn't eaten that pizza before bed. But there are times that we dream and we know very clearly that this wasn't just a dream that this was actually God trying to get our attention and speak to us. And that's what makes a dream become a dream or vision. Do you understand? What, does that help you short enough? I've actually had these experiences. I don't have time to get into them, but there are times you wake up and go, that wasn't just a dream. That was something else, and God was doing something and speaking. That doesn't happen to everybody, but God does use that. He does. And so that's what makes a dream a vision. I didn't just dream a dream, I saw something. Do you see the difference between dream and vision? God was showing me something, all right? Now, Daniel has this dream or vision of four beasts that come up out of the sea. But look closely again at how the sea is described. 
And start in verse seven, chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were storing up what? The great sea. That's very important because that clarifies it's not the Sea of Galilee. It's not even the Mediterranean Sea. And I'm going to do this as quickly as I can because we've got a lot to cover tonight. But all through Scripture, God uses the term waters of some sort to describe the Gentile nations. So when it's talking about how uh, these four beasts came out of the great sea, I'm going to show you from Scripture, it's out of the Gentile nations. As you know, God in his plan has the nation of Israel and then all the Gentile nations. And he's doing something with Israel to reveal himself, not just to Israel, but also to all the Gentile nations and to the whole world. And at this time, his working is in Israel. He's also working in all the nations because he's in control of all that. The great sea describes that. And all through scripture, you'll see waters being used to describe the Gentile nations. Look closely with me at Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to give you about six real quick here. So if you can't keep up, get a pen and paper and double check me later on. Go to Isaiah chapter 8. Look at verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 8 verses 6 through 8. It says, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin... And the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep into Judah on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and the, its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. So God says to the nation of Israel at this point, he says, look, because you've rejected my water, the living water, if you will, I'm going to use the waters of the Assyrians and they're going to come and just flood and take over. Go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Look at verses 22 through 26. Jeremiah 6, starting in verse 22. Thus says the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring up from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring what? Sea. They ride on horses, set in array as of a man in battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So here it talks again, this Gentile nation coming from the north country, from the furthest parts of the earth is going to come and they're going to be like a great sea. Go to Jeremiah chapter 47. Jeremiah 47. Look at verses 1 and 2. In Jeremiah 47, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza... Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out and every inhabitant of the land shall wail. So again, here now, this enemy coming from the north onto the Philistines in this judgment is described as waters again. But go to Matthew chapter 13. 
Jesus does the same thing when he describes the parable of the net in Matthew 13, describes the Gentile nations as water. Matthew 13, starting in verse 47. Verses 47 through 50, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you say, Jim, this, doesn't this include Israel? Actually, no, you're going to see later on, God's got a different way of gathering Israel at the very end. But of the Gentile nations, he's going to be separating. We see it in Matthew 25, the sheep from the goat, but here he describes the nations as a sea and the net's going to be cast into the sea and there's going to be fish of all kinds, many different nations and so on. And the righteous are going to go into the kingdom and the wicked are going to be burned with fire. Go now to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17 verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 17, verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roaring of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold terror, before morning they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. So here in this prophecy, we see that these nations are going to be coming against Israel. They're like the roaring of the sea and the rush of many waters. But in this instance, God shows that he's going to protect them. When they think they're going to win, he's actually going to protect them. Go to Revelation. Here's where it's the clearest. Go to Revelation chapter 17. Some of you might say, Jim, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tracking, but I'm not sure I'm really there with you yet. Well, stick with me. Revelation 17 clears it all up. Go to Revelation 17. Look at verse 1 and then verse 15. In Revelation 17, then it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Again, the waters describing the Gentile nations. Go to verse 15 now. Revelation 17, verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. I think that clears it up for us, doesn't it? The great sea, and we don't have time to take you there, but in Revelation 13, you see the beast coming out of the great sea. When we see here in Daniel's vision, there was a great sea that was being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. And we're going to get to that, what that is in just a second. We see this great sea that's being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. The great sea is the Gentile nations. Now, Daniel also saw that the great sea was being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. We're going to take a little bit of time, not as much detail as we just did about the waters, but we're going to take a little bit of time to kind of show you what the four winds of heaven are. And let me clarify this. There's three aspects of the four winds of heaven. Last night, someone after the Bible study said, um, what was the fourth wind? No, it's not 
three winds and then we no. The four winds of heaven have three aspects. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying this, the first one is this, the second one this, third. No, no, the four winds of heaven, when I'm going to show you from Scripture, have three aspects to them. The first aspect of the four winds of heaven, as you're about to see from Scripture, is it refers to the universality of something, the fact that it's being done worldwide. Whenever you see the four winds of heaven used in Scripture, it's not talking about something that's happening locally on the earth. It's something that's happening globally. Okay? Let me show you what I mean by that. Go to Jeremiah 49. In Jeremiah 49, look at verses 34 through 38. Jeremiah 49, verse 34. Here's a prophecy about the judgment on Elam that's to come. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies, and before those who seek their life I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. So here we see this prophecy. There's a future judgment coming on Elam, and he's going to scatter them where? Over the whole globe, to the four winds, all over. the. There's not a nation that they won't be scattered to, he says. Go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6 says this, up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. So here he said, I've scattered you across the four winds, the whole earth, but I want you to get up from where you are. And we don't have time to get into the rest of that prophecy. A lot to cover tonight. Go to Mark 13. Mark 13. In Mark 13, look at verses 24 through 27. It says in Mark 13, verse 24, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So when is this going to happen, that he's going to gather his elect from the four winds? After the tribulation of those days, this is after that seven-year tribulation period. It's clarified even more in Mark, Matthew's account. Go to Matthew 24. Go to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, we'll start in verse 29. Matthew 24, we'll look at verses 29 through 31. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Listen closely. This is the gathering of the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. Those who are going to survive and be part of God saved of the nation of Israel. Listen closely. If you were to study in chapter 25, look at verse 31 real quick. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and so on. The separating of the sheep and the goats happens after Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. He comes, sets on his throne here on the earth and then all, remember the Gentile nations are all going to be gathered before him and at that point he will take the righteous, allow them to enter the kingdom, the unrighteous righteous will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's happening after his return. But at his return, the Jews are going to be gathered from the four winds. Let me ask you a question. Uh, has, uh, people, haven't we been hearing people say, well, the Jews are being regathered in Israel? Yes, but not really. You're going to see later on tonight in one of our prophecy passages we're going to get to, actually pretty soon, how the Bible said that they would be regathered, but not the final regathering. But here's what's going on. Let me ask you a question. Are there uh, any Jews in Fort Lauderdale right now? Are there any Jews in New York City right now? Of course. There are Jews all over the globe still. And actually, they're going to be continue to be regathered in Israel. At some point, there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple and all these prophecies that are still to come. But as you know from our study in the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and the other passages that talk about it, Daniel's going to talk about it when we get to chapter 9. God, even though he's regathered Israel in some part, is going to have them scattered again. Two-thirds are going to be killed during the tribulation period. Many are going to run off into the wilderness and be protected. The final regathering of the people of Israel is at the end of the tribulation period. He's going to gather his elect. People have tried to make that the rapture. That's not the rapture. Because we hopefully have understood, and you can see through the scriptures, the church will already be taken to be with him prior to the tribulation period. We'll go be with him, and we're going to come back with him when he comes to rule and reign. We'll have already gotten our rewards and our responsibilities, and we'll come back with him. But at the end of the tribulation, all who endure to the end, Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Jews will be saved. And he'll gather his elect from the four winds of heaven, and they get to enter the kingdom. Then, after he's come... After he's set on his throne, he's going to gather all the Gentile nations that have survived the tribulation period, and he's going to judge them. And from there, they either enter the kingdom or they're cast into the lake of fire. So the first aspect of the four winds means the universality of something. But there's a second aspect of it. It means also divine involvement or activity. It's the four winds of what? Heaven. It's the four winds of heaven. It's not just universal. It's being done by God himself. So who's stirring up the great sea? God is. Where is it happening? Across the whole globe, but it's coming from heaven. Go with us to Ezekiel chapter 37. This is that passage I was wanting you to take a look at. And I want you to keep a bookmark here because we will come back to it just briefly in a little bit. In Ezekiel 37, look at verses 1 through 14. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment over our week that we're not going to meet together. Uh, over the two weeks, I guess, before we meet again, I'm going to give you a homework assignment that deals with this passage. So please keep a bookmark here. Ezekiel 37, look at verses 1 through 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was on, upon me, Ezekiel says, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. 
And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And, and I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So here Ezekiel's given this vision of a valley full of dry bones and God tells him, preach to the bones. And they, he does and they, they start coming together, bone to its bone. It, the, the human body started coming back together. And then there was sinew, and then there was flesh, and then there was skin. But it had no breath. And he says to him, prophesy to the breath. Tell the breath to come into them, and they'll live. And oh, by the way, look again. At verse uh, 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from where? The four winds and breathe on these slain. Folks, Israel has been regathered partially, but only enough. In our lifetime, it's been an amazing miracle. Prophecies are being fulfilled. The fact that Israel exists since 1948 is an unbelievable miracle because there had been no nation of Israel for almost 2,000 years since God scattered them because of the rejection of the Messiah. Oh, the Jews still existed in God's eyes. He's always had a remnant, but there was no nation with their own government and all that stuff. But the Bible said in the last days, Israel was going to be in the land for the Antichrist to come into the land of Israel and into the temple and chase them out and all this stuff. Jesus himself, prior to them being scattered across because of their rejection, him in Matthew 24 tells them, when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we'll get to that, we'll get to chapter 9, he tells the Jews, get out of Judah. Get out of Judah. Well, there was no nation of Israel in Judah for a year, almost 2,000 years. But in 1948, a miracle happened. They became a nation again. And ever since they've been a nation, have not all their surrounding enemies wanted to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth? How come they even exist? Because God's word is true, and they're going to be in the land for Israel to be chased out of it one more time. But let me ask you this question. We've seen the miraculous regathering and coming back to life of the nation of Israel. 
but his, his breath in them. As you know, the breath is the spirit of God. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a second. No, you're right. Not yet. They amazingly appear to be alive. But they're more proud of their Zionness and their heritage and their nationality than being people that are worshipers of God. But when is his breath going to come back into them? When he gathers his elect from the four winds at the end of the tribulation period, that's when Israel finally is going to come to faith. We see that, we'll go to Zechariah chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 8. Zechariah 6, it shows us that the four winds of heaven show the activity of God. Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8. And again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between the two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. White ones go after them. The dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Again, don't have time to break down this prophecy, but look closely. Where did these four chariots go? Well, it says it went to the four winds of heaven. And from there, they got their instructions and were sent out into the earth. Who's doing the work from the four winds of heaven? God is acting. So, as we see these beasts come out of the great sea from the four winds, who's doing the work? Four winds of heaven. Who's doing the first beast, second beast, third beast, fourth beast? God's doing this. And he's got a purpose and a plan. Again, don't have time to look at any more, but hopefully you understand that. The first aspect of the four winds of heaven is the universality of its global Secondly, it's also uh, meaning that it's God's activity, divine origin, the four winds of heaven. But a third aspect is also the fact that wind can be also translated breath or spirit. The word ruach in Hebrew is breath or spirit of God. If you were to go back and look, especially in the Hebrew at Genesis, where it describes the creation of Adam and, of course, later on Eve. But when it talks about the making of Adam, it says that God made his body out of the dust of the earth. But then the Bible says, then God breathed into him and he became a living soul. Adam's body was made out of the earth, but it had no life until what? God breathed into it. Whenever I do funerals, not every time, but a lot of times when I do funerals, I like to use the illustration of a glove. And I explained that if I have a glove and I lay it on the pulpit, it's lifeless. It's just limp. There's no activity. But if I put my hand into it, it comes alive. Now, hopefully you all know, oh, no, that glove's moving. No, it's what's in it that's causing it to move. And when I take my hand out, it becomes lifeless again. And our bodies are just the shell, if you will, the vessel for the real us, the soul, the spirit that God has given us. And that's what controls happen to, our, to our bodies. When we die... The real us goes to be with the Lord. The body just kind of lays there in a casket or whatever, and it's lifeless. Adam was created out of the dust of the earth, but he had no life until God breathed into him. Now, go back to Ezekiel 37. You'll see it very clearly. Look at verse 4 and following. Ezekiel 37, 
verse 4. And again, for our homework at the end of our study tonight, please keep Ezekiel 37 in mind. Ezekiel 37, look at verses 4 and following. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I'll lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. By the way, does Israel know that he's the Lord yet? No, that part hadn't happened. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And then he said, these sons of me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say, our bones are dried up. But look what he says. He says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to put my spirit. Look at verse 13. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live and I'll place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. By the way, we're not going to get there tonight, but I could easily take you to the end of Daniel 12 where Daniel is given the vision of the tribulation period and he's kind of terrified by it. And he says, when are this going to happen? When are the things going to be? And He's told, it's not for you to know. It's going to be sealed up until the time of the end. You're going to go sleep with your fathers, but at the proper time, you're going to rise and come back here. Daniel's one of those ones that's going to come out of his grave and come to life during the millennial kingdom on the earth and rule and reign from Jerusalem with Jesus. All this is to say or to show that God is the one who's stirring up the nations. It's not a local thing. It's a worldwide thing. And he is the one who controls all these four beasts, these four kingdoms. Yes, ma'am. When he raises who up like an army? What about, what about that? It just means it's going to be a multitude. Armies had a lot of people. Um. They're going to be running for their lives during the final battle. It's not going to happen without them. Now, at a certain point in the battle, they're all of a sudden going to realize, hey, God's with us, and they're going to be able to fight and defeat. But at the beginning, they're going to be scared to death until they realize, oh, God's doing this, and our enemies are falling at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, and they'll be involved that way. But really, the army aspect here is more of the whole idea of a multitude. When you hear of an army, you hear of a lot, and that's what he's talking about. It won't be a few. Now, go back to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let's take a look at the three beasts tonight. We won't get into the fourth one tonight. Daniel chapter 7, verse 3. And, the four, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now, I'm just going to tell you straight up, the first beast is Babylon. I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. But the first beast is the nation or the kingdom of Babylon. Now, remember, is Babylon existing at this time when Daniel has the vision and the dream? Or have the Medes and the Persians already taken over? 
they still exist. Because remember, we've jumped back in time to between chapter 4 and chapter 5. So at this point, Babylon still exists when Daniel has this vision. And so if you remember from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was told, you and your kingdom of Babylon are the head of gold. And we've already done that study. And so the first beast is Babylon. But at the same time, it says that he looked this time instead of being the head of gold, it said this beast looked like a lion. Now, a lion has been used in the Bible many times, folks, as a description of powerful nations that would judge Israel. But I want you to look at one specifically because we're going to put it together with another one. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4 and look at verses 5 through 8. In Jeremiah 4, starting in verse 5. It says, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant for this Put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And again, this is a prophecy about the coming judgment during that time that Jeremiah was prophesying, coming from Babylon. And Babylon is described as a what? As a lion, all right, coming from the north. Now, this lion, though, in Daniel's vision, this beast looked like a lion, but it had eagle's wings, which is very interesting. Uh, we're in Jeremiah. Go to chapter 48. And look at verse 40. In Jeremiah 48, verse 40, we'll see a lot of times God would use the picture of an eagle in its swift attack. Jeremiah 48, verse 40, For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. Jump over to verse, chapter 49, verse 22. Chapter 49, verse 22, real quickly. Again, you see the swift attack of an eagle. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pain. So again, another prophecy showing how an eagle has swift attack. But there is another time that I'm going to take you to that shows how Babylon was not only described as coming like a lion. Babylon's also described as a great eagle. And they put the two together. Let me show you. Go to Ezekiel 17. Some of you might remember this from our Ezekiel study. It's one of the few passages that some people said, I understand that part of Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 12. It was such a clear prophecy that even people that didn't know a lot about prophecy grasped that one. Ezekiel 17, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it up to a land of trade and set it in the city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil, and he placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. And it had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might 
might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it's planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it and wither away on the bed where it's sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, that's the first eagle, and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled, rebelled against him by sending his ambassador to Egypt. And so the second eagle is the king of Egypt. What he says is he told this riddle. He said, this great eagle comes and comes to this Lebanon, takes this great tree and takes the top off and carries it off to another land of many waters, the Gentile nation of Babylon. But he also allowed some to be planted there. They barely even sprouted. And all of a sudden they're wanting to go to Egypt to look for help. Do you think the first eagle is going to deal well with that? And if you remember from our study of Ezekiel, remember Gedaliah has been left in charge of Israel and Judah as he's taken Nebuchadnezzar, taking everybody captive into Babylon. And Jeremiah stayed. And then they said, well, let's call the king of Egypt to help us. And Jeremiah is saying, listen to God. Don't ask for help from Egypt. You do that, you're going to get judged again by God and Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, they don't listen. But again, so here we see that Babylon was described as a lion and also as an eagle. If you know anything, and you can Google this and find out that it's true, if you know anything about Babylonian culture, all over Babylon, statuaries and images of lions with eagle wings are everywhere. They're in front of many of the palaces, and actually they line an important street used for processions. In Babylon still, there are some left over, the statues made out that made to look like a lion, but they have eagle's wings. But this lion back in Daniel 7 had something amazing happen to it. It was stripped of its wings and made to stand on two feet like a man, and it was also given the mind of a man. Who did this happen to? Nebuchadnezzar. We've already taken a look. You can write it down, double check me later on. Go back to Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the first kingdom. In Daniel's dream, it's a lion with eagle's wings that had been given the mind of a man. Who's the first beast? Please, please get this right. Or we have to start over. It's Babylon. All right. The second, second king kingdom or, or beast is the Medo-Persian kingdom. As we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the kingdom of Medo-Persia comes next. The silver part of the statue is now described here in Daniel 7 as a bear. Now, to be honest with you, this is the very first time in Scripture that a bear is ever used to describe an actual specific nation. I'm not going to show them to you, but there are places where bear is used to describe ferocity of an attack against peoples, but it's never used to describe a specific nation except this one time. The kingdom of Medo-Persia is described as a bear. Now, I need to show you something, though, in Hosea 13. But before we go there, can anybody tell me what these beasts look like? Again, from our study, we just read it. Some of you might not have it yet. The first beast looks like a lion. Second beast looks like a bear. Third beast looks like a leopard. Very good. And the fourth beast is just a terrifying wild beast. We don't know what kind of an image, right? Go with me to Hosea 13. Hosea 13. 
Go to Hosea verse, chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Hosea 13, look at verses 4 through 8. Again, God's dealing with Israel, and he says, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I'm like to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Isn't that interesting? God says, because Israel should know better and they've known no other God but me, even though they've worshiped other gods, they've known no other God but me since since Egypt. But I took care of them when they're in the wilderness, but they grew fat and they forgot me. So I'm going to be to them like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, and a wild beast. Isn't that interesting? The four beasts that Daniel sees in his vision. But there's something about this bear that's a little bit different. Go go back to Daniel 7 and take a look at what's going on with this bear. It says in in, in verses, um, uh, sorry, Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise and devour much flesh. Now, again, if you've ever seen people that draw pictures of this in study guides, a lot of times they'll have a bear laying on its side to kind of be what they think Daniel saw. But I don't think it was a bear laying on one side. It just said one side was raised up above the other. Go to Daniel chapter 8 real quick and look at verses 1 through 3 and then verse 20. Because you're going to see when we get to chapter 8 that Daniel has some more visions. Again, talking about those kingdoms and and all. And in in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after the other vision that appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up at last. Jump down to verse 20. It clarifies it for us. In chapter 20 of Daniel 8, it says this. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So in the vision that he has In Daniel 8, he sees a ram with two horns. One horn was raised higher than the other. And what does that ram represent, according to the scriptures? The kingdom of Media Persia. By the way, the kingdom of Media Persia was one kingdom. But there was always one half that was always more powerful than the other. And it was the kingdom of Persia. Persia was far more powerful than the kingdom of the Medes. They came together, but it was always a little bit greater Persia than Mede. And the Persian kingdom came up after the Mede kingdom. They came together, but the media, sorry, the Persian kingdom was always a little stronger. And the bear was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its, in its mouth, probably dis- depicting the three kingdoms that it had defeated to become power, one of them being Babylon. But it's told to go and devour much flesh. So the lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia. Now, the next beast in Daniel's vision is Greece. Go to chapter 7, look at verse 6. 
After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. All right. So this beast also, it looks like a leopard, but it also has wings, but it's not eagle wings, not described as eagle's wings. They're actually described as what? Wings of a bird. But how many are there? Four. And how many heads does this leopard have? Four. That's interesting. How many of you know much about history when it comes to the nation of Greece and Alexander the Great? You know a little bit about it? By the way, if you've done a a study, you'll find that the kingdom of Greece came, Alexander the Great was in charge, and they covered the the area rapidly. Actually, they had a, a greater conquest of land than the previous kingdoms before them. But Alexander the Great's kingdom, his rule lasted only a very short time. He died young. Does anybody know what happened after he died? His four generals became four kings. The whole kingdom was divided into four parts, just like the prophecy said it would. Go real quickly to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to start in where we left off in verse 4. We just seen the ram that has two horns, but one's greater than the other. And the second one, the higher one came up last. Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's how rapidly this goat is moving. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Who's the one horn on this goat? It's Alexander the Great, very clearly. Again, we don't have time to break this down. We might take a little more time into some of the interesting history behind this when we get to chapter 8. But this right here, folks, what we just touched on briefly is one of the main reasons why people that don't want to accept the word of God being the word of God say there's no way Daniel could have known about Alexander the Great. There's no way Daniel could have known the specifics about his time being short, even though he was in the middle of his strength, all of a sudden he's no longer, and it's immediately divided into four kingdoms, and they spread across the earth at that time. There's no way Daniel could have known that. This had to have been written after that time, and Daniel's trying, they're saying that Daniel wrote it before. Folks, God knows it all, sees it all from the beginning. That's why God can look at Peter who says, I'll never deny you, and says, actually, you're not only going to deny me, you're going to deny you know me three times before the rooster even crows in the morning. How does he know? Because he knows everything, and he sees it all. And that's why We've got, uh, I hope you believe, these prophecies literally came true, did they not? The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persia kingdom with one side a little bit stronger than the other, and then the Greece kingdom coming. That's why we've got to believe, not only about this fourth beast, which we'll deal with later on, but also about the fact that the same prophecy, the same vision, the same dream that Daniel had said that he saw at the end, The Ancient of Days, God the Father himself sitting on a throne and giving a kingdom to his son. 
and him just coming and setting it up on the earth. Hasn't we, haven't we just seen in Ezekiel 37, God says to the nation of Israel about the dry bones, and at the end, I'm going to put my spirit within you as I do that from the four winds of heaven. I will do this. It will surely happen. I'm going to bring you back, and from your graves, I'll even bring you up and put you in your land. Folks, here's your homework assignment. Pray that the breath of God will enter Israel. We've seen them come back to life, the miracles of the bones coming back together in the sinew and the flesh and all that, but there's no breath in them yet. But I believe one of the responsibilities God has given us in the church is the same thing that Ezekiel was told. Speak, speak to them. Pray for the breath to enter Israel. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus, as you know, when he came to the earth the first time, he was sent to who? The lost sheep of Israel. He wasn't sent to the Gentiles. Why? Because as much as God was saving a Gentile here and a Gentile there, and the Gentiles had had enough light to be, be saved and enough light to believe, he was mainly drawing the Jews. That's why the Bible says the gospel to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. His main drawing was the nation of Israel. But he also knew there would come a point where the nation of Israel would reject him and they would be hardened in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel after that will be saved at the end of the tribulation period. And a very interesting thing happens where... Right in the last hours or weeks of Jesus' life on the earth, he, he, a group of Greeks all of a sudden come to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. Before it was a Gentile woman here, a Gentile centurion there, an individual here, an individual there. But all of a sudden there's a group of Greeks that come to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. And Philip goes and gets Andrew and the two of them go and tell Jesus, there's a group of Greeks that want to see you. And Jesus' response is very interesting. He says, it's time for me to die. It's time for me to die. Why was that the signal? Well, he also knew that there would come a point where the drawing of the Jews would come to an end and he'd begin to move his drawing to the Gentiles. Remember, the Bible says no one can come to the Father unless the, Father, the Spirit draws them first. All of a sudden, Jesus is realizing my Father is moving his drawing from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. There's a group of them now wanting to see. And what happens during Pentecost even though the Jews are preaching to the house of Israel, everybody hears them in Gentile languages. And the Gentiles are getting saved, so much so that the Jews are saying, well, we've got to make these new Christians Jews. They didn't get it yet at the time, that God was doing a new thing, and he was fulfilling the prophecy that he's going to be moving to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. He said it way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, that because of their rejecting him and worshiping other gods that are no gods, I'm going to take a people that you don't consider a people, and I'm going to make you jealous. Romans eleven twenty five 25 actually talks about that. Paul came to realize that God saved us. By the way, didn't we already read that at the very end of the tribulation period, God's going to gather what's left of Israel and he's going to forgive their sin. He's going to wash them clean. He's going to put his spirit within them and move them to obey his commands. What an awesome gift they're going to get at that time. Isn't that what we've been given now? We haven't earned it. We haven't done anything to deserve it. It's by faith. It's always been that way. And he saved us to make Israel jealous. Folks, I don't know God's timing, but I sense very strongly in my study and in my prayer time that we are getting very, very, very close to the end of the church age. And so I want to ask you to join with me in something. Read over Ezekiel 37 and begin to pray for God 
to start pouring his spirit, his breath, upon the nation of Israel so that they be saved. I got to be honest with you, there's a little selfishness in this prayer because what's going to happen to us when he does that? He's going to take us to be with him and he's going to finish what he started with Israel. We'll see that when we get to Daniel 9. It comes very, very clear when we get to Daniel 9. But I'm watching now. We've seen Jews saved here and there throughout history of the church age. And I love the Christian ministries that are Jews for Jesus and all these ministries that have been sharing the gospel with them for years. What I'm watching for, though, and praying for is all of a sudden what Jesus saw with a group of Greeks wanting to see him. I'm wanting to see a group of Jews all of a sudden start to get saved. We do know at the very beginning of the tribulation period, before anything happens on the earth, there's going to be 144,000 Jews who are sealed and go out as witnesses. So at some point, I sense at the end of the church age, the beginning of the tribulation period, in that time period, however that transition works, we're going to start seeing Jews come to faith in Jesus. Pray for it. God, we've seen the miracle of Ezekiel 37 happen in our day. They've become alive again. But your breath's not in them yet. And just like you had Ezekiel prophesy and then later on prophesy to the breath, I want to pray for your breath to come into Israel. we got two weeks before we get gather again. So you got two weeks to pray for Israel to get saved. By the way, let God do it in his time. All right? Love you all. Thanks for coming.